Good morning. All right, grab your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to be picking up in verse 7 eventually. Got a lot of setup to do this morning, so I hope you'll bear with me. We'll probably start the passage in like 45 minutes, and then, uh, then we'll work through the passage for a couple hours, and then we'll dismiss and have supper. So uh, you, there will be a test for sure. Um, all right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Have an interesting narrative before us this morning. It's one that um, is some of the best phrases, catchphrases, talking about the, the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant come from this text. Um, some of the biggest misunderstandings about the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant come from this passage. And so I want to present it to you in a meaningful way. But to do that, and I, I want you to walk away with a very tangible useful bit of application for how this really does affect your everyday Christian life. If you've ever wondered why you're not growing, it's probably because you're not doing this piece. Um, There's a large sense in which this is the most fundamental, basic aspect of our growth in Christ. How we do that, how we overcome sin, how we get through the hard times, how we persevere, how we feel God's presence, all boils down to the truth going on in this text. And so it's a very fundamental doctrine, very fundamental teaching. I want you to see this is how you grow. This is how you get to that Christ-like idea that, that's presented before you. This is how that works, and we so often do this the wrong way. So the unfortunate thing is that sometimes this topic is a little overwhelming and confusing. So I'm going to do the best I can to lay it out before you. So I set all that up to say I'm asking you to think with me this morning. This one might be a little more heady, but I promise you, if you can follow this flow of thought, if you can see this comparison Paul's going to make between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, if you can make sense of that in your mind, this is going to revolutionize the way you grow in Christ, the way you think about how God works in us, how the law, how righteousness, how morals, how good works and conduct um, come into the picture. You can put all this together it's going to make a lot of sense for you. So remember what Paul's doing. He's, he's written this letter. It's after some difficult times with the church at Corinth. They've finally um, softened up to Paul. They're repentant towards Paul. And he's, he hadn't been there yet, but he's written this letter. He's setting up and dealing with a very common problem in that early world. And that is this idea of how do Christians relate to the law, particularly what we would call now the Old Testament law. There's Jews in his life. Um, in the ministry of that church, and really all churches, he deals with this every time he writes a letter. Somehow this comes up. The book of Galatians is perhaps the clearest case where Paul's having to deal with this issue, and that's the other place we get a lot of the same lingo that'll happen in this chapter, so we know that's what he's talking about. And here's the issue that comes in all the time, is people in that world, and, and we ask a similar question today, but maybe from a different standing point. Um, same question, do we have to do particular good works in order to be saved? And the obvious answer should be no, but at the same time, there's obvious behaviors that if you're doing, we would say you can't be a Christian if you're doing that. So we kind of answer the question hypocritically. That's how it feels anyway, that there's certain things that Christians don't do. We just, if you do those things, it's hard for us to even call you a Christian. If this is the way you're living, we think there's a connection between being saved and living differently. But at the same time, we're emphatic that you get saved apart from the living differently thing. That that 
It's related somehow, but it doesn't save you. In their context, it meant this. Do you or do you not have to keep the Old Testament law with regard to, say, circumcision, with regard to, say, the Sabbath, with regard to, say, the moral code of the Old Testament? Do you have to obey that, and does that make you a Christian? So you obey the law and believe in Jesus, and that makes you a Christian. Now, many of you know Paul's basic answer to that question is what? Do you have to do both? No, you don't have to do both. That's his emphatic answer. And people hear Paul say that so much that some people accuse Paul of saying, well, he's just preaching this easy believism thing. You, you just believe in Jesus and you're fine. You don't have to do anything. And Paul's saying, that's not what I said. You heard me wrong. And it's like, but Paul, that seems exactly what you said. That all we do, do is believe in Jesus and we are saved. We're preaching a gospel that produces results, not a gospel that needs results to save you. He keeps saying this over and over and over again, and it can get complicated. It can be hard to understand. So let's, let's unpack what Paul's doing. So we're going to pick up in verse 7. Before we read there, I just want to read the end of the previous paragraph. So this is where we left off last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So we're working through this book, working through a flow of thought that's going to last for three chapters. And so I want to make sure we're flowing with that thought. So start in verse 5. So not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So we talked about that last week, that the sufficiency of the gospel does not rest on us, but it comes through the Savior Jesus Christ, and in verse 6, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, new covenant is synonymous with what we call our New Testament. So we could say this, this is the same thing. Testament is just another Latin term based for covenant. He's made us ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what's he set up as opposites here? Letter versus Spirit, letter versus spirit, what we'll see is what he's setting up is old covenant versus new covenant. He's going to call it ministry of death versus ministry of life, ministry of condemnation versus ministry of reconciliation, ministry of the spirit versus letters written on tablets of stone. So he's going to use this comparison to show the goodness, the fruit of the gospel comparing the two covenants. So here's what we're going to do. Let's start with the old covenant. Let's just give the very bare basics about what we mean when we say the old covenant. A lot of times in the New Testament, there's shorthand for that, and it's just called Moses. Do we follow Moses or do we follow Jesus? And that's the, the comparison, the contrast that is consistently set before us. We get the exact same contrast in the book of Hebrews. Um, we get it in Galatians. We, we see it in even the way Jesus does his ministry and preaches. He's comparing what the Old Covenant says versus what he says. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You've heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you. Now, why can Jesus make that transition? Because God spoke in the Old Testament through prophets, but how was God speaking through Jesus? Directly, because Jesus is God. So here's that, that dichotomy that's set up. Now, I want to make sense of that dichotomy before we call it the ministry of death in, in chapter 7. Let's just take your mind, go back to the Old Testament, particularly the book of Exodus. You know the historical setting of the book of Exodus. What country do we start in in the book of Exodus? Do you remember? We're in Egypt. 
Very good. So Exodus, Egypt works together. Take the E's. So God's people find themselves in Egypt when Exodus begins. Now, unlike how they got there, they got there under good terms. When Exodus begins, God's people are slaves. They're slaves in a foreign land. They are slaves under a godless empire, under a godless ruler, and God's people are crying out for help. They want God to save them. And now when we use that lingo save in the Old Testament, they explicitly mean they want God to do what to them? Set them free from Egyptian rule. God's going to save them from Egypt, literally. Now this is used in the New Testament as a picture of how salvation works consistently. But in the Old Testament, we mean something quite literal, something quite direct, that God is going to save his people. Now before we think about what it means to be saved, in the New Testament, when we say saved, we don't usually mean a literal salvation, right? We, we maybe want to be saved from a job, maybe want to be saved from a relationship, from an illness perhaps. But when we use salvation in New Testament terms, we're talking about something much more spiritual, right? We think we don't go back to Exodus for our model. We would much rather go back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 where God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden and God created them to bear his what? His image. We could call that the human vocation. Man exists to be a picture, a manifestation, a representation of the very glory of God. You should look at man. God should get glory by default. That's what it means to be an image bearer. We bear God's image. You know what quickly happened. Man sins. That image is broken. It's still present, but it's broken. It's a poor representation now. And we are in sin before God. So the New Testament emphasizes that sort of salvation. We need to be saved from that rather than just some from literal circumstance. What I want to show you, however, is that when God saved his people from Egypt, he was doing both. He was both saving them literally from a place, and he was also doing a spiritual work that was very good, very holy. Oops. I don't know how I did that. I dropped my, my stand off the front. It's coming toward you. All right, let me get back focused again. All right, so in Egypt, let's go back to Egypt. So God's people have cried out for help, and God sends them a baby. We see the same sort of pattern in the New Testament, but this baby in the Old Testament is who? You know, this is Moses. So Moses is born. Some time goes by. A lot of time goes by. Eighty years later, finally, Moses shows up and is ready to lead God's people to the promised land. Of course, you know how most of that story goes. He's sent by God to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh says no. Ten different times, ten different plagues, until the death of the firstborn, the celebration of the Passover begins. And what does Pharaoh do at that moment? He says, all right, fine, get out. So they leave. Of course, Pharaoh changes his mind. That's where we have our crossing of the Red Sea story, where Moses parts the water, the people go across, the army follows, and God swallows up the might of Egypt with the snap of a finger. Simple work for him. God delivers his people. Now I want you to think about it chronologically in that story. At what point in the story are God's people following the law? They're not. What's the most obvious reason they're not following the law yet during that narrative? Because it hasn't come yet. They've not even received the law from God at this point. 
there's no law to obey. There's no sacrificial system explained for them to enact. They don't have that. They get saved from Egypt. So did God save them before or after they started doing good works? (laughs) Before, they're not doing good works at all yet. In fact, they get across the water. They get across, they watched God part the sea and destroy the Egyptian empire, their army, in that one brief moment. They get to the other side, they sing a praise song, and then they turn around and do what? Complain. Oh, God, you brought us out here to die. Really? I mean, we do the same thing. We can make fun of them all we want to. We're we're just like that. They're not holy yet, right? But that's what God says he's doing. He's going to take a people. He's called them by name. He's drawn them out of Egypt. He's rescued them from their slavery, and he brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. He says, I'm going to make you holy. You're going to be my people. Now, what we often miss in the Old Testament is when God was giving this law, this is not a bad thing. We have this tendency to think of the Old Testament law negatively. That's not how they viewed this. Moses said towards the end of Deuteronomy when he's done 40 years of ministry, he's taught them the law, he's explained the law, he's shepherded them in the law, he's gotten frustrated with them over their lack of following the law. He has spent his life preaching the law. In fact, Deuteronomy means second law. He's preaching it again. More law, more law. Guys, listen to the law. And this is how Moses says it. He says, guys, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. And choose life in that context meant what? Do the law. Obey the law. Now see the pattern. God saved his people and then gave them a law to live by, and he called obeying that law life. I saved you so that you could obey my law and have life. Well, think about what he's restoring in that moment. What did they lose in the garden when Adam and Eve ate from that fruit of the tree? They destroyed that image. They broke it. They brought sin into the world. Their human vocation had been corrupted, and God is granting them the opportunity through the Mosaic law to do image-bearing once again. Do you see it? God says over and over again in the Old Testament, he was making his people holy. He would set them apart from the world. He chose them. He elected them. He made them his own. He put them in front of the world for all the world to see so that they could act differently. He wanted them to look distinct from the world, but specifically, what were they supposed to look like? Him. Which in the New Testament, we wouldn't just say God generically. We would say Jesus specifically. And so what's happening in that old covenant is God is granting them life. He's showing them what it means to be Christ-like. So is there any positive use of the old covenant in that moment, in that time? Absolutely. It's gloriously good. It's so good. Now let's, uh, let's read what Paul has to say about it. He says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Now, just remember, we just, all this positive stuff we just said about that covenant, what did Paul call it right there? The ministry of death carved in letters of stone. It came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Think about that. Is there glory in the old covenant? Without question, God is speaking gloriously through the prophet Moses. That's your first blank. God is speaking very gloriously. There's 
visible glory from God in all of those scenarios. What is it that they saw descend on the mountain when Moses went up? They saw a visible manifestation of God's glory. At first, God didn't write the commandments down on stone. He spoke them to God's people, and it was so glorious, so amazing. Do you know what God's people did when they heard it? They panicked. They ran away scared. They said, Moses, you can't ever let that happen again. That scared us to death. Now hear that. This is significant. God reveals his glory, this opportunity for life. Be an image bearer. Do what is right. I have saved you to do good works. Here is my glory. Do this good work. Portray my glory to the world. Be my glory to the world. They see it, and how do they respond? They're terrified. I don't want to do this. So this is this consistent theme we have in the Old Testament. It's a good, glorious thing. God has presented life to us. But have you ever had to pray and a, a group of believers and the guy that prayed before you, the girl that prayed before you, just like had the most epic, righteous, awesome prayer you've ever heard in your life? Anybody done that? I mean, I've been there a hundred times, right? And then what do you do when it comes time for you to pray? You know, if you're doing that whole squeeze the hand thing, you just skip. You know, you're like, my turn, skip. I'm not, I'm not going after that, you know? <laughs> There's no way, all right? <laughs> we have this natural tendency when we see something glorious and we know we can't match it. We know we, we, don't, we can't stand, we can't play that game. It's like, you know, I was going to play ping pong with you and then I watched you play and it's like, never mind, my paddle's broke. You know, <laughs> look over here, I, I can't play today. It, it scares us, it intimidates us when we see something glorious and on a much more glorious scale, that's what consistently happens in the Old Testament. People see, they behold the glory of God, and rather than being something that's life-giving, it scares them to death because it condemns them. Another way we can think about it, God give, gave them this list of commandments. Not that they would be saved by them. He'd already saved them. They'd already trusted him in faith when they left Egypt. They had put faith in Yahweh God, and he had saved and redeemed them already. Then he gives them this law, and all that law provided for them was proof that they could not bear God's image. They were inadequate. They couldn't do it. So there's a limitation to the old covenant. It was never designed to be permanent. It was never designed to last forever, which is that last phrase. So they couldn't look at the glory of Moses' face which was being brought to an end. See that built in. The Old Covenant was never designed to last. It's not what it's for. It was a step. It was a stage. God had offered them life in it, but really all it proved was that law could not grant life. It says, verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So first and foremost, Paul is not saying here that the Old Testament was bad. He's not saying it was useless. He's not saying it didn't offer good things. He's just saying take that glorious event in the Old Testament. Say compared to what Jesus did, if you take two lights and one of them is bright compared to the other, you can get it so bright that you can't see the other anymore. He's saying that's the comparison between the two covenants. One is from Moses and one is from the Spirit. Verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, 
the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So hear what he's saying. How did that old ministry bring condemnation? Well, God had already saved them. He'd already redeemed them, and he gives them this law to live by. But their inability to keep the law was in of itself an act of condemnation. You give someone a righteous list to follow, and then they can't follow it. You're revealing to them. You're showing them. Paul would say in Galatians, you're teaching them. You're tutoring them that they need something else. God doesn't just say, guys, behave. Because if that's all he says, what happens? We may try, but we fail. We can't do that. We don't want to do that as Christians either. Just say, hey, you know what? Be good. That's not useful. You ever try that with your children? Just tell them, guys, be good. You just need to be good. <laughs> you got to give a little better direction than that, right? In fact, with children, you have to cultivate their heart. Cultivate the attitude, and that's what's going to happen in the ministry of righteousness. Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So another contrast. Old Testament temporary, New Testament what? Permanent. All right, let's make sure we're filling in some blanks. So the first one was Moses. Then the glory of the Old Covenant was so great that it left a physical impression on Moses and really the people of Israel. They cowered before this manifestation of God's glory. However, number three here, God spoke glorious through Jesus as the God-man. Now let me share a side story here. Peter got in a lot of trouble for making a mistake on this topic. Um, you have Moses and you have Jesus. Right? And if you put them in the same level and say, you know what, both of these are very important prophets. You just made a heretical mistake. And what was that mistake? God and Moses are not on the same level playing field in any sense of the term. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain and there Jesus is transfigured before them in the glory of God radiating from him. And Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter says, you know what, I'm going to build a tabernacle for each of you. He didn't even finish what he's saying. God the Father interrupted him. Can you imagine? You're speaking and God the Father cuts you off. All right. Well, it terrified Peter um, dramatically because he fell down and thought he was dead. It's over. I have... I have offended the holy God. I stuck my foot in my mouth one too many times, and it is done. You remember what Jesus, God the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That's interesting. What were the other two people, Moses and Elijah? They're both fulfilling what Old Testament category? They're prophets, but don't listen to them. Who do you listen to? Listen to Jesus, God himself in the flesh. Listen to him, now I love how that passage ends. Jesus doesn't tell Peter to get up. Jesus walks over and puts his hand on Peter's shoulder. And says, it's okay, Peter. God, the glory of that moment for Peter. But that's what's going on here. One had glory, amazing glory through Moses. But there is no comparison for the glory that comes from God himself. 
So this new covenant glory is going to be infinitely better. Now, was God faithful to his promises in the old covenant? Yes, he was. Good and bad, he was faithful. So how much more will the God-man be faithful to his covenant? Think about it. Jesus said, we can come up with several things. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can we trust that? (laughs) You better believe we can. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. And if I told you that, I'm going to come back and receive you again to myself. Can we trust that? Is he going to do that? He says, I'm coming back. Is he going to do that? I'm going to raise my children up on the last day so that they can spend eternity in resurrected bodies with me and my Father on this planet for all eternity. Is that going to happen? Yes, we can trust these promises. They're from the God-man himself. So verse 12, since we have such a hope, this is the hope that we have. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. This word comes up often in Paul's language. We are bold in the way we approach God, not like Moses. So we need to be bolder than Moses. Have you read the Old Testament? Is Moses ever bold? Wow, he's very bold at times. And Paul's saying, oh, we're not humble like that dude. We're bold because of this hope. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome as what was being brought to an end. You see what's going on here? What would happen to the glory of Moses' face after he left God's presence? It would shine, but then what would happen? It would fade. So what would Moses do? He's a sneaky guy. He'd put the veil over while it was still gloriously radiating. And then he walks away, and what's everybody assume? Must always be doing that. (laughs) But it's not. He's covering it up. He says, we're not like that. We We don't just show up and go, hey, look, God's glorious. Wow, see that? Okay, don't look. It's fading out now. Now, Paul's saying, guys, it's like that with us all the time, every day. The Spirit is doing His work in us, and we are absolutely bold that it always works out this way. Verse 14. I'm going to make an interesting comparison here. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read, their minds and they, you need to make sure you realize who we're talking about. Their minds, talking about the Israelites who were there with Moses. Did they ever do anything stupid? Did they ever harden their hearts in disbelief? Like every other paragraph, it feels like. Right? They, and then when they read, for to this day when they read, now we're still talking about Jews, but what Jews? The Jews of Jesus' day, who by and large have done what to the Messiah? Rejected him. They did not receive him. He says, but their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant here is the reference to the Law of Moses, when they read that, the same veil remains unlifted. So it's like Moses put on a veil. And Paul's saying that's a metaphor. Because if you look at the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, the veil is still there. Now let me make sure you follow this segue. Because we think about a lot of times in the New Testament, you have this Old Covenant versus New Covenant. New Covenant's good, Old Covenant's bad. That's not exactly how it's working. It feels that way, but that's not what's happening. Think about the Pharisees for just a moment. You know who the Pharisees are. That's who Jesus is almost always taking jabs at or being jabbed at from 
It's the Pharisees. What are the Pharisees doing? Do they have a high view of God's law or a low view of God's law? Incredibly high view of God's law. In their world, everything is about whether or not you obey the law. They've made a fundamental error in their theology. They forgot that God saved them and then gave them the law. And they started believing that God saved them because they obeyed the law. Major transition. So rather than seeing in the law the glory of God revealed, this is the character of Christ. We need to be like Christ. We need to be image bearers of God. We need to have the character of God. We need to be holy like our God. Instead of seeing Christ in the Old Covenant, they saw law. They saw regulation. They saw ways and means to save themselves. Rather than being in God's debt, they saw the law as a means of putting God in their debt. You see the difference? One is presumptuous and wicked, and one is the gospel, that we by no right, by no goodness of our own are saved and redeemed. But the Pharisees saw that God had to honor them because they had obeyed the law. They made God the debtor rather than man the debtor. And Paul says that same veil remained unlifted because only through Christ Is it taken away? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. How do you get rid of the veil? Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Who do you have to be looking at for the veil to go away? Jesus. You've got to be looking at Jesus for this veil to be removed. And we can't Look at Jesus and ever say, oh man, yeah, I'm righteous like that. It's not what happens, is it? When we read about Jesus, when we see what he's done, we see who he is, does that make us feel big about ourselves or does it make us feel small? Because by looking at Christ, by default, the gospel is happening. We turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, and now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is There is freedom. Now, in this case, freedom from what? The law. Freedom from obedience-based righteousness. We don't earn our standing before God. I don't have to do certain things to get God to like me. You'd never do good enough. He likes you already. We are free from this. Paul uses the same lingo in Galatians where he says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that yoke of slavery was the Old Testament law. Do not turn to law to build your relationship to God. You do not need to make a list of things to do to make God like you. Do not trust in works of the law even for your sanctification. God didn't give us this law to help us just do these things will be like Christ. Every time we set a law before us, what it does is reemphasize, reinforce to us how inadequate we are at keeping law. And so then the question comes up then, well, should we, should we bother doing good things? I mean, should we, I mean, it seems like every time we set a law before someone, every time we set a list of rules, we create Pharisees. We create hypocrites. Either someone who gets really good at it and thinks they're righteous, or someone who knows they're not good at it and so fakes it. Either way, that's not a good result. So should we just throw law out all together. The answer is verse 18, guys. This is everything. If you can follow this, 
you can follow the key to the Christian life. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, which means we're looking where? If the, if the veil's not there, what have you done? You're, you've turned to the Lord. You're looking at the Lord. You're looking at Him. It says, with unveiled face, we do what? We behold the glory of the Lord. We see it. This is the most fundamental piece of Christian growth. You behold God's glory, and it does something to you. We're being transformed into the same image. See where we ended up? What did we break in the garden? The image. We cease to be able to do the human vocation. We cease to be able to obey God's image, be God's image. And it's not by giving us a list of rules that helps us do God's image. Rather, what do we do to bear God's image? We look. It's everything. We don't bear God's image by being better Christians. We don't bear God's image by obeying certain rules and regulations. We don't bear God's image better by being more moral. We bear God's image better by beholding Him more clearly. You see Him. Because that's the goal. If you behold the glory of the Lord, it transforms you from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's fill in that last blank. The glory of the new covenant is so great that it literally, this isn't a metaphor, it literally transforms people into the likeness of Christ. This actually happens if you behold the glory of the Lord. Why do we want to sing a praise song about the glory of Jesus? Because we want to see His glory. We want to behold it. We want to speak it. We want to say it all. Why do we study the Scriptures? We want to open our eyes and see the glory of God. Why do we hang out with fellow believers? We want to behold the glory of the Lord. If we see this glory, it changes us Every time. So here's the key to your Christian walk. You gotta see more Jesus. You just gotta see more Jesus. And that is it. You do that and you've got it. Let me give you a quick practical hint on how to do that better. So one, we could see Jesus in terms of what he has done. Meditate on the cross. Meditate on the Resurrection. I love songs that include both of those in the same song, like where one verse he dies on the cross and the next verse he gloriously raises from the dead. Without fail, if we sing a song that does that, the room gets louder because in that moment we're beholding the glory of what God has done. That's why we love Easter so much because we so clearly behold the glory of what Christ has done in the resurrection. But that's the past. We can also behold the glory of what Jesus is going to do. So many times, Paul puts the emphasis on the eternal weight of glory that's coming. The glory that's to be revealed makes everything you're doing now totally worth it. The glory that we will see when we meditate on eternity, when we meditate on His return, when we, when we meditate on His consummation of all things, His recreation, the glory that is to be revealed. When we see that in our minds, it transforms us. But there's another way to see God's glory, and it's, and it's in what Jesus is doing right now. When we see God work in someone else, when we see God work in community with other believers, there's a transforming work in us. When we see God at work, so this week I got to have two really awesome conversations, one with my 10-year-old daughter, um, Abby, and also with uh, um, Georgia Robertson, both of them coming to a point in their lives where they have clearly beheld the glory of the Lord and want to follow 
that, Lord, and want to trust in Him as Savior and to see that happen in two different, in some ways isolated scenarios at the same time warms my heart. And we're going to honor that in a few weeks with baptism. When we see a baptism, yet again, we see the glory of God. And you see all this is working, right? Because what are we supposed to do with our light? Let it shine, which in that case was good works, so that what happens? Do you remember? The world sees our good works and they give glory to God, the Father. And so we get to see God, His glory, the glory of Christ through the gospel past. We get to see the glory of God through the gospel future when we meditate on the things that are coming. Guys, we get to behold the glory of God in life change every day. This is why Paul can say we have such a hope that we're bold. Not like Moses. And he only had a sea parting. He only had manna fall from the sky. He only had a cloud. But he was left with a disobedient, grouchy, grumpy people who did not obey the Lord. We live in the age of the Spirit. Where we daily, weekly, regularly see God transform lives. We see the miracle of transformation. We see the miracle of repentance. We see the miracle of obedience, of faith, happen every day. And that is the key. We just see it. We behold the glory of the Lord, and we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another.